Reverend Dr. Munter Isaac is our guest on today's episode, joined by the always incisive, always compelling Liz Brunig of The Atlantic. Reverend Isaac is a Lutheran pastor who's lived in Palestine his entire life, with the exception of his schooling. He earned a master's degree in biblical studies at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, and he completed a PhD in biblical theology at the Oxford Center for Mission Studies in England. But he was otherwise born and raised in Bethlehem. He went to Birzeit University in Palestine and is sadly part of a fast dwindling community of Christians in the Holy Land. Demographers say there are today roughly 182,000 Christians living in Israel, about 46,000 living in the West Bank, mostly in Ramallah and Bethlehem, as well as Jerusalem. And as Munter tells us, tragically less than 1,000 Christian believers now left in Gaza. As a boy, Munter's grandfather used to walk from their family's home in Bethlehem to the city of Jerusalem, roughly a five-mile walk. Still living in Bethlehem today, Munter wears three hats. He's assistant pastor of the Christmas Evangelical Lutheran Church. He's the academic dean of the Bethlehem Bible College, which as of October 7th, when Hamas launched its horrendous attacks from Gaza into Israel, was serving 410 students. And he's the director of the Christ at the Checkpoint Conference, a four-day immersive every two years that introduces clerics and religious students from all over the world to some of the geopolitical, religious, and spiritual dynamics of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And as he says, invites participating religious leaders into opportunities for peacemaking and reconciliation. Of course, at the moment, with Israel roughly two months into its ground offensive in Gaza, with war raging between Israel and Hamas, life for Munter and his fellow believers in Bethlehem is pretty frightful. Though he and many others throughout the world are praying for a ceasefire, as I read the tea leaves, Israel's ground campaign isn't likely to end until closer to the end of January. Munter is a very capable theologian. He's speaking with us from the crucible and the brutal reality of war, fatigued and weighed down. We put to him the question of whether on the other side of this war, he sees any possibility for hope, for better political leadership, for a better economic reality. And here's what he said, Right now, we're mainly concerned about ending this horrendous war in Gaza. And second, even when you think about Gaza, it's going to take many, many years to rebuild everything, if, if it's going to ever be rebuilt. This Christmas, there's war in Gaza, and there's war in Ukraine, as there has been since Vladimir Putin invaded in February 2022. As the French say, it's c'est la guerre, not c'est la vie. Munter and his fellow Palestinian Christians are just trying to endure. So all those dynamics in play, I hope that even in the midst of the holidays, you'll be enriched by this hard conversation, offered from a unique vantage point and moment in the place of Christ's birth. Enjoy the conversation. You know, one thing that I wonder since you're living through such a difficult season is, you know, where do you see the image of God in a, in a time like this? Yeah, over, over the years, I've learned to find God first among people and then among suffering. And both of these have a lot to do with our experience in this land. So to begin with, you know, this is the Holy Land and most people actually expect to find God in places, in buildings, in geography. It's, yeah, I understand the validity of that. But God 
just with people. Uh, we know from scripture that this is one of the most radical teachings of Jesus. You know, God is not found in Jerusalem or Samaria. I mean, that's, that's the wrong question, but he's among people. And I would say even among those who suffer, uh, he's, he's with those who are going through pain, tribulations, uh, and hardships. This has been our experience here. And I look back at what I've written in the past during Christmas, during Advent of the idea of Emmanuel, God with us, God with us precisely when we're occupied, when, when we go through checkpoints, when we live under siege. And right now, when people in Gaza are going through the most horrific experiences, it's there where we find God. God is under the rubble. He's in the operating room, suffers with those who suffer. I look at the experience of Jesus himself, who cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken? So even Jesus understands this difficult, most traumatic experience of feeling abandoned even by God. That's why he is with us, Emmanuel, God with us. So it becomes this loop in which where is God? God is with us when we suffer. What do you say to parishioners of yours who are struggling with their faith because this season of Advent has been especially hard? I am transparent with that, that I struggle with my faith these days. We've, prayed, we've been praying a lot for a ceasefire. We've been asking for how long, for how long, oh God, for a while now. It's hard to experience the silence of God. It's really hard. And my message, and this is actually what I preach about this Sunday, is that we need to fight hard to keep our faith. When you lose everything, the last thing you can afford to lose is actually your faith. That's the last safeguard we have right now. That's the last thing we have to hold fast to. If we lose it, I think we lose everything. As a people, we lost a lot. As a people, we endured a lot. But I think we still have our faith in God. And if we lose that, I think this is when we give in to despair. And I'm not ready to go there. What is despair theologically? What does it mean to despair as a Christian? To despair as a Christian means you no longer believe God is in control. To despair means you no longer believe that Resurrection Sunday is coming at that. The final word is for the empire, for religious extremism, for death, for darkness, for injustice. If injustice has the final word, then we have nothing to live for. If death has the final word, we have nothing to live for. Paul expressed this when he said, if we have hope in this life only, then we are miserable. In, in First Corinthians, I think, uh, woe to us uh, if we only have hope in this life. I think he's, he was hitting at something incredibly profound, which is if God's judgment is not there, God's justice and righteousness does not have the final word, then we give in to despair. If Herod had his way and Jesus was killed uh, as a child, then we give in to despair. So we have to believe that the final word is for God and that in his sovereignty, God, certainly, we don't know why, allows certain things, but he will ultimately have the final word. Munter, can you name what the sounds that we're hearing are in the background? This is the Islamic call for prayer. Our church is next to a mosque. It's part of life here. And we are in the middle of a market in Bethlehem. 
our church, Christless Lutheran Church, is in a very central place. Sometimes we're praying, the Muslim call is praying, our bells are ringing in our church. This is Bethlehem. Christians and Muslims live in Bethlehem and have been living here for a while. And remind us, you're just south of, of Jerusalem by a little bit, six miles or so, and how far from Gaza City? Is it 40, 45 miles? Yes, around 40. And when we talk about Bethlehem, my grandfather used to walk to work in Bethlehem, in Jerusalem. This is how close it is. Uh, it's, uh, it's supposed to be 15 minutes drive from Bethlehem to Jerusalem. An hour and a half drive to us uh, at best. Uh, but right now, everything is, is closed. Uh, we can't go to Jerusalem. There are checkpoints everywhere. The roads are controlled, uh, closed. We go, even the bypasses are closed. Bethlehem is isolated right now. Uh, that's, that's one of the sad, you know, consequences of this war that is happening right now. Is there clear reason to think you will be safe? That's a difficult question. I mean, we're safe. We're safe right now, but I can't guarantee anything. We've learned this very well in October 7th and what happened next. Right now, we are really concerned about the settler virus around us in Bethlehem. In the city, it's safer. Around the city where the uh, Israeli Jewish settlers are in charge and active, that's where we are really afraid. I haven't left the Bethlehem area since October 7th out of fear from the roads. I only asked once when I traveled to the United States for a peace mission. But beyond that, it's, it's not safe to go uh, in the streets that are controlled by uh, Israeli military and the settlers. Uh, next to us in Bethlehem, there is a refugee camp that is, it's called the Heisha. There is another one literally next to the Bible college called Aida, where I teach. And both of them have, uh, especially the Heisha, a lot of Israeli military incursions, usually at dawn time or early morning to arrest or sometimes just kill young Palestinian men. So is it safe? Not really, but you just get used to where to go, when to travel, where not to travel, and then things could happen at any moment. And, and remind us, I think I read this morning that there are something like 670,000 Israeli settlers in the in the entirety of the West Bank, about about two million Arabs. Is that about the right numbers? How many settlers versus versus Arabs? I think around eight hundred thousand settlers, I, uh, and and it includes East Jerusalem because East Jerusalem was occupied in nineteen sixty seven. There is around two point three million, two point five, two point eight million Palestinians in the West Bank as well, but. The settler community controls the vast majority of the West Bank, the Jewish settlers, with the settlements, but also everything around the settlements and the military bases that support the settlements. The presence of settlers and these big settlements impacts every aspect of our lives. The roads, the water, which is a serious issue, the borders, the land, the route of the wall, which suffocates life in most Palestinian towns and villages, including Bethlehem and its surrounding as well. And do you have a sense for how many people have left since October 7th? At least three of my friends, at least three of my friends, uh, with their families, of course, who left, who, you know, they reached what you call a boiling point. They said, enough, we're not going to let our kids go through this. And by this, I mean this whole environment of constant war, siege, fear. There was a very real fear, especially the first two weeks of this war, that it will escalate to the West Bank. 
honestly, right now, I feel that if the world was okay with the displacement of 1.9 million Palestinians, and they were okay justifying it as self-defense, Israel's right to defense itself by destroying the, house, the homes of 1.9 million people and making them homeless, including the Christian community. Uh, when you ask me, is it safe? I can't help but think, will this ever be our fate? If the world was okay with what happened in Brazil, will it ever happen in the West Bank? Not in my wildest dreams I would have ever imagined that any country or Israel can get away with destroying a whole region like they did with Gaza. You have to understand Gaza no longer exists as, as, as we know it. It's the whole Gaza Strip is, is rubble, is, even the geography has been changed, altered, everything, everything is destroyed. And now you have 2.3 million people in a very, very, very tiny place in the south. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. We, we hear of schools hosting 20,000 people with four bathrooms. It's, it's, it's horror stories that we're hearing. And do you have relationships with people you trust that would make it possible to sort of stay irrevocably? Or do you feel like you might at some point also uh, feel the pull to leave? I am among the stubborn Palestinians who say I would be the last to leave. I feel we're called here. I feel this is our calling. I feel this is, this is the only place I can call home. And I, I definitely believe that we have a mission. We have a responsibility. We have a mandate in this life. I, I believe God calls us here for a reason. I don't want to be remembered in history as the last generation of Christians in the Holy Land. I don't want to be the one responsible for turning the Holy Land into museums. And I strongly feel that the Christian witness should continue from Bethlehem, Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. Having said that, I can't help but think of a friend of mine right now in Gaza who against all odds decided to stay and against all advice decided to stay before this war, I mean. He leads a Christian school there, clearly has a very sense of calling in his life, wonderful family. And right now he says that one day in this war is worse than all previous wars combined. Right now they're saying in Gaza, we wish we left. They don't know if they will survive this war. And this is a real possibility. I mean, three days ago, two women were shot in the church. I mean, outside of the church building, within the church vicinity in Gaza. Two elderly women, a mother and her daughter. What did they do? I mean, so they fear for their lives. Literally, they fear for their lives. And they know that their homes were destroyed. They sent me pictures of their homes. Our friends I have. Look at our house, pastor. It's completely destroyed. Uh, so imagine the trauma they're living in. This is more than 70 days of constant bombing, shooting around the church, and knowing that after all this done, if they survive, they have lost every, uh, you know, every position they have. I can't blame them if they leave, to be honest. Uh, and if I was in their shoes, I would only think of my children. This is the most challenging dilemma we face as Palestinian Christians. We want to stay, but we think of our children. I was in a Bible study for our church, a few months ago, before October 7th, we discussed this. Should we stay? I voiced my strong opinions. Everybody knows I have strong opinions about this, that we should stay. They shared, many of them, they shared my belief, but almost all in the meeting said, we will not encourage our children to stay. And you have to understand how challenging life is here. I mean, again, before October 7th, I mean, can you imagine now? Limited opportunities very limited opportunities, very limited space to live within. 
checkpoints everywhere, injustice everywhere, discrimination, segregation. I mean, I have family members in my congregation who haven't seen their siblings for years because they can go to Gaza. I have a friend in my church, church member in Bethlehem, who had to leave Bethlehem because Israel wouldn't give his foreign spouse, foreign wife, a visa. Of course, any Jewish person can immigrate to our land and live in a settlement next door and have more rights than we do. So you live with this happening every day and you think, why, why should I stay? Or why do I want to subject my kids to this? And again, we're talking about life before October 7th. Can you imagine the hell that people in Gaza are living in right now? Can we salvage a Christian presence in Gaza after this war? I really doubt it. Did it impact the Christian presence in the West Bank? It definitely did. And we've been, and the, the sad part, I mean, we've been saying this for years. We've been saying this for years. We saw this coming. Yet never did I fathom that it would be this magnitude. 9,000 children killed uh, in less than 70 days. Uh, in almost 70 days. It's horrific. It's really horrific. You know, one of the things that occurs to me about the Advent story is that Mary and Joseph, they go to Bethlehem as part of an imperial decree that, that everyone should be taxed. And, you know, in that sense, Christianity's earliest roots are, are under empire, under occupation. What, what is it like dealing with occupation and the effects of, of empire, you know, not just not just the local effects, but, you know, the, the global effects of empire, including the, the sort of American imperialism that is, is blockading the area. Yeah, to the, to the empire, human beings are commodities. Uh, we are not fully human. When you are on the receiving end of an empire, when you are the colonized, you feel you're not fully human. Uh, our land was constantly described as a land without people, because the land had people. They know that the land had people. Uh, but we're not people of equal worth. And this is what it means over the years. I mean, and, and, and this war more than anything confirmed to me that the world, the Western world at least, does not see us as equal. Even as Palestinian Christians, we continue to suffer from rejection from the uh, Western Christian world. Our theology is dismissed. Our position is dismissed. We are dismissed ourselves from conferences, Christian conferences. I can tell you many stories of invitations to me to speak in conferences that have been withdrawn and my colleagues just because we're Palestinians. This is what it means to, to live under an empire that does not see us as equal and always be on the other side of the world, physically and metaphorically and spiritually. There's a friend of this project, Esau Macaulay, who spoke with some journalists recently, and he has this wonderful book called Reading While Black. And invariably, life, you know, experience affects what you see in scripture. And you see different things if you're a, a, a black American historically in the United States than if you are white. And I hear a lot of that in some of your uh, writing and work also, that you're sort of speaking on behalf of, of the oppressed. Uh, you're speaking on behalf of those who have been occupied. You're, you're, and of course, that's very common on campuses today too, right? You have, whether it's money or whether it's wealth or power or sex or race, these categories affect what you, what you see in the classroom. And I'm wondering, you know, for our listeners, given sort of your experience, how does that affect what you see in scripture? How should that affect what you see in scripture, the life heritage and experience of pastoring a church in Bethlehem? My predecessor, Reverend Mitri Rahib, who pastored this church for 30 years where I am, always uh, says that 
the Bible is a Palestinian book by par excellence. By that he means the Bible reflects the Palestinian story, the Palestinian experience, being always under empire. I mean, being under an empire or being under occupation is a very biblical experience. You alluded to when Jesus was born, but even before that, the exile, the Babylonians, the Assyrians. The Bible was written in a context of an empire. The kingdom of God is a response to empire. It's an alternative to the empire. The logic of the kingdom of God is in direct contrast with the logic of empire. We see it. The logic of, you know, the, the God of empire is a God of war. He's a tribal God even. The God we experience is, is a God who is in solidarity with the oppressed, is a God whose temple even is destroyed, whose son is crucified, uh, who's always in solidarity with his people. I talk about the kingdom of meekness, the meek inheriting the land. There are many things we read as Palestinians in scripture that resonate with our experience as being occupied. One of my favorite passages in scripture is the Song of Mary in Luke chapter 1, which I always say, the coming of Jesus according to Mary, who is a wonderful, wonderful theologian, at least according to that song, is good news to some and it's bad news to others. And, and look who benefits from the visitation of God into our land when, she, when Mary says, I just opened it. He has brought down rulers from their throne. It's bad news but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things. He has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel. Remember it to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. As, as a Palestinian, I resonate with this prayer. I love this prayer because we see so much arrogance, so much proud people around us who control our fate, who make decisions on our behalf. I look at how people right now are discussing the future of Palestinians in Gaza. Who should rule them? Where should they go? They were okay now. They, they know 1.9 million people are homeless. Why doesn't Egypt take some? Why doesn't Jordan take some of them? You know, they treat us like boxes in a room, wondering where to store or to take these boxes. This is how the world looks at us. They decide on our behalf all the time. This is what the empire does. Uh, you know, in our recent history, this is the Belfort Declaration. And again, Jesus lived in such a context. Jesus challenged such a context and declared that his kingdom is precisely for those who mourn, for those who are thirsty for justice and righteousness, for those who seek and work for peace, for those with a humble spirit. How many arrogant leaders do we have right now in our world? I, I hope you get my point, how relevant the Bible is. And you have to remember that before we even get to that reading, we have to deconstruct a lot of readings that were imposed on us, namely that the land belongs to the Jewish people as an eternal possession. God favors between people. God has a special plan for a certain people. And we simply have to accept, you know, that Israel now can just impose on us then that they are, quote, returning to their land. And we have to accept you know, all of these theologies that have, you know, to many sounds like good Bible, uh, you know, reading a textbook. You take a verse here, a verse there. This is biblical prophecy with total disregard to our presence. We had to deconstruct a lot of that. We had to challenge that so that you finally arrived at the point where you see God actually, a God who takes sides 
not based on ethnicity or nationality, but a God who takes sides with the oppressed, with the poor, with the marginalized. One thing that I think I and probably a lot of people find hard to reconcile with the nativity narrative of Jesus is the slaughter of the innocents. It seems difficult to relate to the Christmas story. So how do you see the, the slaughter of the innocents that you're, you're enduring now as related to the spirit of Christmas? Yeah, I think the story of what Herod did is a story we avoid. We focus so much on the joy of Christmas. We don't associate Christmas with the slaughter of children and a family escaping that miraculously by becoming refugees in Egypt. Again, out of all places, I think now Palestinians are trying to escape to Egypt. And according to tradition, most likely they went through Gaza, I mean, the Holy Family. Yeah, it's a story that brings so much meaning to us. In our church right now, we created a manger with Jesus on rubble that resembles a, a bombed house. To me, the connection was natural. When people ask me, how did you get this idea? The gospel talks about children being slaughtered. And we see children slaughtered every day on our TV. Children literally being pulled from under the rubble. Having already said that I see God under the rubble in Gaza, the connection was very natural. Jesus was born, you know, in the most difficult circumstances. And while the world will continue to dehumanize the people of Gaza and rationalize their killing the same way Herod did 2,000 years ago, we see the image of God in every child. This is why we created this image of a manger with rubble, with Jesus in the middle. So you can be sure this will be the focus of many Christmas sermons this year, the slaughtering of children by Herod, because we're seeing it happen all over again in our world. And we see it continue. I mean, this is not a, an attack that happened in one day and left many children. That's tragic if, if that happens. This is something that has been happening for more than 70 days. This is what makes it hard to accept and swallow. Do we matter? Do they see us as equals? And we see how it's rationalized. You know, the human shields argument, the self-defense argument. We still remember the children of Bethlehem today. There is a special room in the church of the Nativity Underground that has bones, skulls, believed to be from that massacre. We don't know, but at least they remind us of that massacre and remind us of the horrendous, horrific circumstances in which Jesus was born and lived his early lives and escaped. But as I said, the Sunday in church, again, as I was looking at the image of Jesus under the rubble, which is below the pulpit where I preach, and I told people, please remember that picture. Keep looking at it because that baby who survived the massacre and then went to Egypt and became a refugee, actually returned to Palestine, did amazing things, challenged Herods and Pilate and challenged empires, provided an alternative to the empire, and then defeated the most important enemy, death itself. So the story of Jesus actually gives us hope. And we're looking for any sign of hope. And I hope that my people find that sign of hope in the same Christmas narrative that we're talking about. You know, Christmas celebrations were canceled. This was the headline all over the news this year. And God knows how many journalists called me to ask, you know, can you tell us about the cancellation of Christmas? And say, yes, Christmas celebrations are canceled, not our prayers, not our thoughts, not our, you know, the real Christmas. And how meaningful the Christmas narrative is for us today 
Munter, I hear a lot of what you're describing as sort of adding a cross to crown that if you're an American Christian and you're thinking about agency and capacity and potential and entrepreneurship and, and flourishing life and presence for your kids, that there's suffering in the world still and that we should keep in mind cro uh, cross. And obviously that's what you're living through. But I, I wonder if you could speak a little bit to that other way around. You know, is there, is there, in your view, has there been a sense of potential, of agency, of capacity, uh, of political economy? I think one of the reasons a lot of people have been so heartbroken with the untenable situation has been that there hasn't been, that the PA hasn't been possible to lead and partner with very well, or that, 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 that the capacity of the sort of economy of, 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 of Gaza and the West Bank hasn't been potential laden enough to change the situation. And so oppressed versus oppressor is the only narrative. And we think about history and look backwards. I guess I'm wondering, do you have any thoughts about that ideal of future leaning wealth creation of capacity? Uh, the story from Michael Novak was always, look, you always talk about the causes of poverty. That's the mistake. You shouldn't talk about the causes of poverty. You should talk about the causes of wealth and wealth creation. So if you look on that side of the coin, do you see any hope? Not right now, not right now, because right now we're mainly concerned about ending this horrendous war in Gaza. And second, even when you think about Gaza, it's going to take many, many years to rebuild everything if, if it's going to ever be rebuilt and restore life as, as possible. I think the Palestinian people have proven for years that we can succeed. We have what it takes to succeed. We're among the most literate people in the Arab world. Palestinians who live abroad are usually very, very successful. But you can't succeed with so much limitations and control. There is a ceiling to our potential with a political system that, you know, makes sure you don't go beyond a certain point. Everything is controlled by Israel. Everything. Having said that, I think that, and I'll speak here as a theologian, and what I'm going to share is what I've been, what I taught for years and written about. And I must admit, as a disclosure, that what I'm about to see seems so far from reality right now. I, I don't, I question, I'm being very transparent, very vulnerable. Do I believe this anymore? But I've always believed that the only way forward for us as Palestinians and Israelis is to share the land, not to divide it. Uh, sharing the land means having not just equal resources, equal rights, equal responsibilities, no discrimination, but also sharing the resources of the land and living off one another. The land is too small. We're almost the same number, seven million, seven millions. You know, I don't see any other way forward other than accepting that we both belong to the land and moving forward. Since the recent Israeli government, it's been hard to see this. Uh, it's really been hard to see this as we're coming to reality. And with this war, it made us doubt anything. We talked about peace and reconciliation and coexistence. Right now, we just want to survive. Right now, we hope we make it. Right now, we hope, you know, we're able to stand up again. And then we'll see, once we stand up, we, we see what we do. I'm confident of our resilience as a people. I mean, we've taken so many hits over the years. But at this particular moment, survival is our only priority. Priority. Yeah. What would you say 
to an American Christian who feels very strongly about, you know, the sort of eschatological reasons for being invested in in Israel, these these notions of fulfillment of prophecy. What is what is the Palestinian Christian view of that kind of theology? Well, now I can think for hours on this. First of all, I want to say that please remember that what you are excited about in terms of eschatology, uh, the books you write about it, and, and the plans, the speculations, the films you make, all of that, you're talking about real people in pain and suffering. I hate the fact, I hate the fact, and believe me, many Israeli Jews that I know hate the fact that to many evangelicals, we are a chapter in the textbook of the future of our world, you know, the subject in the eschatology of evangelicals. Humanize us. Remember, you're talking about real people with pains and aspirations. It's so unacceptable, especially when you realize that it has an impact on policies. That's, that's the first thing. I mean, you're not talking about an empty land. You're not talking about people in another universe. Remember that. We're real people with hopes and dreams and pains. But to you, we're just chapters in, in a eschatological textbook. The second thing I would say is, I think when a church has no message to its presence, usually it does two things. You either glorify the past and talk about the forefathers, our Christian forefathers, maybe the heroes, or you talk about the end times, about things in the next universe and so on. Uh, as hope was always meant to create people who are ready, people who are active, people who think about the eternity. Not people who calculate and speculate and disengage from their will. The irony for us is that many Christians with their obsession with eschatology and prophecy are no longer prophetic. They're not addressing the injustices in the world. They just see them as chapters in an unfolding drama and they're excited about it and are no longer capable of challenging injustice of speaking truth to power, of sympathizing, of empathy with people because they're obsessed with the you know, future and drama. It's a church that is bankrupt, to be honest, when all you offer to your people is what you think will happen. And of course, you keep adjusting your uh, future plans every now and then and based on world events. You know, the beast, one time it's what, China, one time it's Iran, one time it's Russia. I mean, it's, it's entertainment. To you, that's it's, it's about our lives, and it's a it's a sign of a, of a church that has no message to offer. If I prove that the, the that my gospel that the Bible is right by pointing to these self-fulfilling prophecies, I mean, come on, how about following Jesus, showing that his teachings work to prove that the Bible is right? Uh, so this is what I would say to those, especially evangelicals and others who are you know obsessed with end times and prophecy. Liz, can I maybe raise one to you on this same theme? If Munter has written in the United States for places like Christian Century and Sojourners, and there are some ties between maybe the main line and, and the Lutheran church and, and his, his, his work uh, at, in Bethlehem, Christ the Checkpoint, how do you think about audience around some of these themes of faith when you write? You know, how, how do you sort of, are you mind, are you concerned at all, I guess, that evangelicals would read it one way and mainlines would read a different way and Catholics read a different way? How, how do you think about audience when you write about themes that are as sobering as we're talking about today? I try to make 
what I write as accessible to as wide a swath of people as I can, while acknowledging there are some things that make sense to Christians that are sort of second nature to Christians as a matter of moral intuition that are not global and that are that are not shared across the board. You know, in this in this situation, I think the thing that has been most important to to me is to to point fellow Christians to the words of Pope Francis, who I think has has been very consistent since the outset of this conflict and calling for a ceasefire, and has you know in recent days even described the Israeli attacks on the two women that that Reverend Isaac talked about as terrorism, right? So I I think the Holy Father has been an extremely powerful moral voice on this issue. And and so, you know, I've been referring a lot of people that I've spoken to recently to his words. I just wanted to ask how Christians globally can be in solidarity with Palestinian Christians right now. Christians around the world can be in solidarity with Palestinian Christians by joining us in our call for a ceasefire, uh, an immediate and a comprehensive ceasefire. Right now, every 15 minutes a child is killed in Gaza. How, how can we live with this? You know, I, I hope to see the urgency. I want to see the urgency among even the Christians who call for a ceasefire. This is not acceptable under no circumstance. We appreciate prayer. We appreciate uh, financial support right now. But more than anything, what we're asking for is, is active solidarity. That means taking strong positions, lobbying, active lobbying for this to end. Now, I don't think we want anything else at this moment. To be honest, I don't think we want anything else. We just want this to end. We're traumatized for our friends, our people, for by the images we see. The burden is so big right now, so enormous. If the war stops now, what if it lasts for a few more weeks or a month or so? I don't know. Uh, please join us in our efforts and call uh, for a ceasefire. This is what we're asking. Well, God be with you. Get some good rest. Thanks, Liz. Thanks, Munter. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Faith Angle connects leading journalists with leading religion scholars and clerics. Thanks for listening.